Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Amen. Yeah, you know, that's, that's how a world that doesn't know him will taste and see that he's good. It's the fruit of your life. It's the fruit of our lives that the, that the Spirit of God is producing. And when people taste that, there's no explanation other than the Lord, because you have no explanation for them other than the Lord. Um, it says that men would see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. How will they know to glorify your Father in heaven just by seeing your good deeds unless you're quick to point people to the one who's producing that within you? It's why we've got to make sure that, this, that the gospel is pure. We've got to make sure that we're not in it for any other reason. We talked about that last week, but... But truly, like God's more after the motive of our heart than the work of our hands. He cares so much about where your heart's at. He cares so much about the why behind your doing, more than even the doing itself. If the why changes, the doing will always follow. But there's not enough doing in the world that could change the why. You could work your life away trying to fall in love with Jesus by the, way that, the things that you do rather than getting alone with him, being transformed by him, falling in love with him, and then seeking to walk after he walks. He, the pressure's off because <clears throat> he, he took it on himself. He said, if you follow me, remember, these, these young guys are, are, are by their boats fishing. Along comes Jesus, and he says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they didn't know what he was talking about at that time. Like, you know, we look now, we read the Bible, and we know what he was talking about. We know he's talking about men who will go out and preach the gospel, and people will come into the kingdom. And we're like, oh, yeah, follow Jesus and make you fishers of men. These guys had no clue what he was talking about. Here comes a rabbi, and he says, if you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. But the amazing thing about that is he said, just follow me, and I'll make you. You follow me, and I'll make you become what you were supposed to become, what I intended for you to become. He didn't say, follow me and make yourself. There's a lot of people that are trying to invent themselves rather than following the one who created them and letting him make them who he created them to be. Because we get these ideas of what it looks like or we, we have these lofty ideas of what life should look like. You remember when you were a kid and they asked you, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's like astronaut or all these different things, right? But the truth of the matter is, is like, you don't know because you, you haven't experienced life. You haven't discovered what God's placed inside of you. You haven't learned what his dream for your life is. And you can know the dream he has for your life, but you have to know him in order for that to happen. So he takes these young boys, and I was thinking about this. It's like, he says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. You first follow me and get to know me. See what I'm like. Get to know me. Learn to love me and be loved by me. It was this intimate thing of drawing them in and saying, come and get to know me. Come be with me. Come spend time with me. Come see what I do and watch me and know my heart and see the way I treat people and the way that I speak. And then I'll make you fishers of men. And I was thinking about how these kids could have gone out, like right in that moment, if they just hear, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, they decide I'm going to go do the things that Jesus called us to do. And they run off with their nets and start throwing nets on people. You got I'm serious, because that's what, I mean, what would their grid be? They were fishermen. That's how you caught fish was you went out with your nets. So if I'm going to fish for men, the only way I know to fish for men, you grab that side, I'll grab this side. Let's run through town and net people and drag them back to Jesus and be like, see, we did it. A bunch of hurt people, you know, all messed up and tangled up in nets and knocked in the head with fishing weights. And you got a bunch of proud young men standing there going, we did it. And there's Jesus going, guys, I said, if you follow me, I'll make you into the thing that I called you to be. That's not what I was talking about. Be careful before you go run off trying to do the things that you think Jesus is calling you to do without knowing the heart behind what he's called you to. I promise you, a lot of people would have been hurt if they hadn't followed him, learned what his heart was, and discovered what it truly meant to be what he called them to be. 
We've got a bunch of people running around if we're not careful because we hype the, you know, and we, 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 what gets put on display and what gets romanticized so many things is the things that Jesus called us to do. But really, truly, the, the real work is in the place that no one sees. It's in the quiet place, intimacy, being with him, alone with him, learning his heart, learning what he's like, and letting him transform you so then you can be entrusted to go and do. And nobody's going to be hurt in the process because you know the why behind the what. And so I was, I was just thinking about all that, and I had a different message ready to preach, and then this morning I woke up with, with these scriptures on my mind and this thought in my, in my heart. And so um, turn your Bibles real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, ch- chapters 12 and 14 are super famous, especially in charismatic church, because it's where Paul talks so much about the gifts of the Spirit. And so we love those, and we're so excited by them, and they get skipped over often a lot of times in, in churches that don't believe it's for today. And so if we're not careful, we react by putting all of our attention there, and we swerve into the other ditch, and we make life about the two chapters versus the chapters that surround it. And I think the Spirit of God knew that that would be a tendency and knew that maybe that would be something that happened. And so Paul is in the middle of writing in chapter 12, um, and he writes this. He says, now you're Christ's body, chapter uh, 12, verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I'll show you still a more excellent way. And see, here's the thing is, if we're not careful because we've segmented the Bible into chapters... We think, okay, complete thought. And sometimes we could even, if we're reading a chapter a day, stop reading there. But this was never broken up into segments when Paul wrote this letter to the church. It was one continuous letter. And within that continuous letter, there's multiple thoughts that are connected together. And so he continues. He says, and I, was, I, and I show you still a more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, <clears throat> I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And he goes on to describe love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. And he gives us this amazing practical way of knowing what love looks like. Love is not some mysterious thing that that has been presented to us by Hollywood, which is a feeling, which is something that, that it causes an emotional response. Yes, there's an emotional response to the love of God, but it's more than just an emotion that comes and goes. There's a practical way to know what love looks like, and Paul spells that out, and it's really easy to see. And once we know what love is, when we see him, and he is love, then we understand when we see something that's not of him, that's not love. And so Paul wanted to make sure of that, but I just, I was, I was, I was thinking about this morning, I thought, it's not coincidental that in the first chapter where he's talking about spiritual gifts and offices and stuff, and then in the 14th chapter where he starts talking about earnestly desire, because he goes on after talking all about love and how if I do all these things but I don't have love, it's worthless, I'm nothing, all that. And, and, and the next uh, um, chapter, 14, begins with, now earnestly desire spiritual gifts and above all that you could prophesy. So he's not saying it's wrong, he's not saying don't want to do it, and here he talks about what it is and what it isn't, but right in the middle of that, it's like the Spirit of God said there is a danger danger if we're not careful that if we do these things without this one thing, it becomes something it was never meant to be. And so it's not like, it, like when he says, I, I become as a noisy uh, clanging gong or a noisy cymbal, he's not saying like, 
oh, it just isn't, you know, it's just it, it, like, like a superfluous way of describing it. No, there's intention behind him saying that. And so he says this, he says, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels, in other words, if I'm the most gifted communicator, I'm witty and, I'm, and, and I can speak so eloquently and I'm intelligent and I'm learned, and, and I, that would be the tongue of men, like I have all the wisdom of man and I could speak so well. Or he says, if if I have the tongue of angels, like if there's a mystical quality and there's this thing that just is so like like heavenly sounding and mystical sounding in what I'm saying. He says, listen, even if I'm the most gifted communicator that can communicate well, more uh, better than anyone else on earth, and I have this mystical thing going on when I talk, if all of that stuff, if I have that and I don't have love, I am a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong. If I don't have love, a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Think about what he's saying. If you were to come in this drum cage and Tony was to grab his drumsticks and start beating the cymbal as hard as he could, you would do two things right away. You would stuff your fingers in your ears because the sound would be so offensive and it would bring harm. And you would get as far from that drum cage as you had to to where the sound was no longer offensive and harmful to you. Paul's saying, listen, guys, it doesn't matter how good it sounds or how intelligent it is or how mystical it seems. If it's not birthed from a place of love for people, it's actually worse than worthless. It's harmful because what will happen is people will close their ears and start running. Here's the problem. The next time they see someone sitting behind a drum cage, they may not be as as apt to approach it. They may shove their fingers in their ears and run away because the last time they were near that, it brought harm to them. It was annoying, and it hurt them, and they had to run away from it. And here's the biggest danger. See, a mature spiritual, a mature believer can see the wrong and it not turn them off to the right. But what about a young believer who this is their first experience and they say, I want nothing to do with symbols because the last time I was around them, what happened? And they close their ears to it and they get as far from it as possible. Like like we have to understand, this is a way bigger deal than simply just, oh yeah, well, you know, if you don't have love. No, he's saying, listen, if the motive and the reason for what you're doing isn't love, you can be actually harmful to people and cause them to shut their ears when truth comes. And that's a big deal to the Lord. That's not a light thing. Then he goes on and he says, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. He says, my gifting, I can be gifted. And and I can have this, this unshakable faith that you see mountains move in front of me and no matter what comes I seem unflappable and 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 I have all I have knowledge of all mystery and I have all knowledge and I can just give words of knowledge I can speak to things that I shouldn't know you know I know all mysteries nothing's a mystery to me I know everything he says listen if I have that going on in my life but I don't have love I am nothing nothing And I was thinking about that. I'm like, man, how, how does that even happen? Where, how could someone do these things but not have love? And then I realized God is love. 
And John, in, in, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he's writing and he says this, real simple. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love doesn't know God, for God is love. So he says, I could do these things and not know God, which is how people will end up hearing from him one day when they say, but, but God, we did all these things. And he looks at them and says, I never knew you. Like, that's a sobering thing. That's a sobering thing to think about. He says, I could do all these things, and if I don't have love, if I'm not becoming what I was created to become, you were created in the image and the likeness of God, who is love. You were created to be love. You were created to, to love him and be loved by him and then to overflow that love into the world. And everything that we do is supposed to flow from a place of love. And he says, if you're doing it for any other reason, you don't know God. That's not me. That's the word of God saying that. He says, it's real simple. If you don't have love, you don't know him. Because everybody that knows God loves. And the one who doesn't love, he doesn't know God. And, and so we talked last week a lot about the motive, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, man, like, he even moves into the natural realm. He says, if I give all my goods to the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. He doesn't say it doesn't profit the people. The poor receive, and, and, and you give your body to be burned. And I was thinking, I'm like, why would someone give their body to be burned or give all of their stuff to the poor for any reason other than love? And I felt like the, God, the Lord said, because they love the praises of man more than they love the praises that they receive from me. And so they're doing these things. And from the outside, it looks good. It looks like I really love because I'm giving all of my goods. And Paul goes so far as to say, if you went to the most extreme thing, which was to give your body to be burned, from the outside, there's not one person that would watch somebody offer themselves up to be burned and think, surely they love people. Why else would a man ever do that? And Paul's saying, listen, it doesn't matter if every single person on earth that saw what happened thought that what you did was from love. If that wasn't what motivated you, it profits you nothing. And I was, I was looking at that word, no, and I was thinking about, you know, John's the one that wrote, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And I was thinking that, that same disciple John wrote in chapter 17, verse 3, he said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that word there is gnosko, and there, that, that word's been used a lot. But you know the first time that word is ever used in the New Testament that you ever find it? It's in the book of Matthew. It's actually in the first chapter of Matthew. It says, And Joseph knew Mary not until she had given birth to her firstborn son. Wait, wait, think about what's being said here when you take this all and put this together and let Scripture speak to Scripture. Mary and Joseph were married. They were husband and wife. And they were for a while before Jesus was born. He knew about Mary. He talked about Mary. 
He spent time around Mary. He was in Mary's house. Mary was in his house. And everybody looking in would assume, obviously, he has intimate knowledge and intimate union with her because they're husband and wife. For everybody looking, from the outside looking in, you would say for sure that Joseph Gnosko would marry. Obviously, it's the consummation of marriage. It's what they look forward to. It's, it's, it's covenant. It's, it's a beautiful, holy thing created by God for a husband and a wife. And they're living in the same house. They're married. Uh, everybody looking on the outside looking in would say, obviously, they have intimate union together. But the truth of the matter is, is Joseph didn't have intimate union with Mary until after Jesus was born. Here's the thing. Everybody from the outside looking in might think that you have intimate union with God and and everything from the outside could look like you have intimate union with God. But if you don't, it means that your life actually means nothing because the point of your existence isn't the things that you do. It's who you are and who you've become through intimate union with the Father. And there's not enough works that you could point to that would make up for a lack of intimacy with him. You could stand there and try to argue all day long. It it, it scares me sometimes when people say, well, if I'm not doing what the Lord's called me to do, how come this and this is happening? God's goodness is not limited to your obedience. It doesn't say the poor don't receive and they're not blessed by what you do. It doesn't say that Jesus doesn't even argue with the people. He doesn't say you didn't prophesy. He doesn't say you didn't cast out demons, that people didn't get set free. He doesn't say that other people haven't benefited and haven't been blessed by the thing that you're doing. He's saying for you, it means nothing because I'm not interested in the things that you've done in my name. I'm interested in in knowing you and having intimate union with you. I want to gnosko you long before I want to see you do things for me. And if we're not careful, sometimes we will look to the things that we're doing as proof of knowing rather than actually letting our knowing be the thing that leads to doing. There's not enough doing in the world that could make up for a lack of intimate union with the Father. And there's, not enough, there's nothing that intimate union with the Father won't allow you and cause you to do. I promise you. And so this is what John's saying here. He's saying, listen... He's writing to the church and he's saying, like, all these things could be going on and, and you may see this and you may see that, but the truth of the matter is, is what God's interested in is your heart. What God's interested in is you. He wants to know you. He wants to have relationship with you. He doesn't just want to be married and live in the same, married in word and in title and live in the same house and have you talk about him. He wants to actually have intimate union with you. And that's what he's after. And from that place of intimate union, then everything that he wants will, will, will flow through your life. And think about Jesus. Jesus walks onto the scene and he's getting ready to go do all kinds of amazing things. What's the first thing that happens? God stands over him from heaven and shouts, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Why? Because he wanted him to know that he was his son and wanted the world to know that he was his son before he wanted him to go out and do things because he wanted his doing to flow from who he was, not out trying to do things to prove something to other people. 
And so I, I, I was thinking about that, and that led me to thinking then this morning as I was preaching about how twisted things can get if we're not careful and how with a good heart we can make something that, uh, of something that's not supposed to be. And, and I was thinking about how like if we're not careful and we don't know the Word of God and we don't know Him and have intimate union with Him, we can so easily get led astray and so easily buy into something that's not even scriptural. And I, I was giving an example this morning. I was thinking like generational curses is something that, that the church has bought into and it's been packaged and sold to the church. And it's been used to try to bring people deliverance and bring them freedom. And, and, and yet you never once see Jesus talk to people about a generational curse. Think about it. He has a softball set up for him when he meets the woman at the well. It's a softball set up on a tee because she's a woman who has gone from man to man to man to man and is now with another man. After her four marriages, she's finally settled with a man and she won't even get married to this one. She's just living with him like she is. You bring that to a Christian who's not using the word of God to show people the truth. And what did they say? They say to her, well, you know, you obviously have something, uh, maybe a generational curse in your family of promiscuity. And, and we need to bind that because your mom was someone who, are you kidding me? Jesus doesn't say that. Or maybe, maybe we go into the, uh, to the father wound thing and we say, well, you know, it's because you weren't loved by your father. And so you're looking for the love of a father and you keep looking for it from man to man to man to man. And, and it's because your earthly father didn't love you and you need to go back and forgive your earthly father. Jesus doesn't say any of that stuff to her. He says, here's the problem. You're looking for me, and you can look anywhere that you want in this world. Until you find me, you're never going to be happy. He doesn't look at her and say, like, oh, well, we have to go back and try to fix this, or we have to go back and heal this. And, and, and even further than that, think about this. A generational curse. We have told people, we stood in front of people and said, well, I think it's a generational curse. And then you have good Christian people who don't know any better that say, I have a generational curse. And you open the door to that, and the enemy says, oh, you want a generational curse? You believe because as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. You think that you're cursed? I'll come along, and I'm happy to fill that void. You, you want to you admit that you have it? You want to open yourself up to it? Here I come, and I'll make things happen in your life. So it reinforces that false belief that you have. So then you put your faith in getting set free in something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the truth that the Word of God says. The Word of God says that he became the curse of sin. Every single inner, uh, 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 generational curse uh, ministry... I have no idea why God wanted me to talk about this this morning, but I got on it in the first service, and it feels right this service. But every single generational curse ministry uses verses from the Old Testament that talk about the sins of the Father being passed down from generation to generation, even to the third and fourth generations. Here's the problem with that. It was the curse of sin that was passed down because the sin of the Father, the curse was passed down. It said that Jesus became the curse of sin on our behalf when he hung upon the tree, for it is written, Cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. If that wasn't enough, wait a minute, if that wasn't enough, He stood before people and said, call no earthly man your father, for you have one who is your father, and he is in heaven. So if I'm born again, and I'm actually a new creation, not the man that I was, I'm new creation. Everything passed away, and behold, all things. You realize how much Paul believed that all things became new? Here's how much he believed it. This is what rocked me and made me grab onto the gospel of knowing who I am in Christ and really believing that I am a new creation. I, I knew that in my head, and I would read, you know, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things passed away. Behold, everything's become new. And I knew these things, but I didn't have something that made me able to wrap my head around the actual, like, how, how, how 100% like true it was and the reality of it until I was innocently reading Corinthians one time. And I read the line where Paul says, receive us, talking about himself and Timothy, for we have wronged no one. I read that verse and all of a sudden it clicked to me. Wait a minute. 
This is the man who persecuted the church. This is the man who dragged them off to be killed. This is the man who stood there and they laid their coats at his feet when they were stoning Stephen. He gave the approval for Stephen to be stoned. He was uttering threats against them. He had a letter written giving him permission to chase and persecute the way as far as he wanted to go and and find them and drag them off to be killed anywhere that they were gathered. This man, speaking to some of the people he would have persecuted, was able to write, we've done nothing wrong. And I realized... He actually believes that the man who did that died when he met Jesus and that the new creation resurrected to newness of life in Christ will never answer for those things before the Father. Why would I answer for those things before man? I'm not the man that I once was. The man that did those died in the desert. And the man that stands before you today has wronged no one. And he believed that. You realize when the enemy comes to you and tries to talk to you about your past, you could even join him if you wanted to just for fun. I mean, I wouldn't because I wouldn't entertain him probably. But if you wanted to, when he came to you and started telling you things, you could be like, dude, I know. I hate that guy too. I am so thankful he's dead. That guy deserved to die. If anyone deserved to die, it was that dude. You could throw rocks at the old carcass. You know what you can't do? You can't think that a problem you face today requires you to go back and resurrect and fix the old man. The old man couldn't be fixed. That's why he had to die and be resurrected to newness of life. I'm telling, listen, here's the thing is that people, we, people say these things and with sincere hearts and truly wanting to help people. But where do you find anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus is ministering to somebody? In fact, they ask him one time, whose sin caused this? There's one time where the actual question is broached to him. Never mind him becoming sin that hung, I mean, becoming the curse on our behalf because he hung upon a tree. Never mind him saying, don't call any man on earth your father, for you have one who is your father. If you have one father who's in heaven and he is perfect and without sin, how many curses are coming your way if that's your father and you're his son? And if your brother Jesus hung on a cross and became the curse of sin on your behalf, why would you ever accept something that he hung on a tree to be taken away from you? Why would you give that place? It's because we're so desperate to find an answer for something rather than opening our Bible and letting the word of God be the thing that divides soul and spirit. And people with good hearts and good intentions are teaching people things that are causing them to spend years of their life sidetracked chasing ghosts of the past that have already been killed by Jesus. They've already been dominated by the blood of God. They have no right and no access to you because they can't make it past the cross. So you have to go back around behind the cross and revive them and grab them and pick them up yourself because they can't make it through. You have to go back and get them. And and, and, listen, how many of you in here actually have ever believed that you had a generational curse? Be honest. There's no shame in that. I, I got introduced to him when in Christianity, I was like, yeah, generational curses, my dad. You realize there's people that genuinely are looking in their family tree to try to figure out the things they should be afraid of? The only thing that's hanging in your tree is a bloody carcass of a man, Jesus, that was resurrected and brought to newness of life, and there's some stains on the tree where he hung. That's it. That's it. The only thing in your tree is, is there's still some blood where his, where his hands hung. There's still some blood where his feet was. There's still some blood where they, where they put a crown on his forehead. Why? Because for any man to pass through and have death, death pass them over, they had to take the blood of a lamb and they spread it on the sides of the door 
and on the top of the door. And then Jesus said, I am the way to the Father. I am the door. No man gets to the Father unless he comes through me, except he comes by me. And so they think they're being cruel, and they nail his hands, and they put a crown of thorns on their head, and all they're doing is putting blood on the sides of the door and blood on the top of the door so that everybody could pass through and be saved and that none would perish but have everlasting life. That's what's in your tree. That's what's in your family tree. You don't have to worry about the fact that your dad was given to this or given to that. Now, there are familiar spirits. You know, there are sins that maybe you grew up seeing over and over again as a repeated way of living, and you have to deal with that and realize, like, this is the way that I was taught. But here's the point. Anything that was taught to you by an earthly father that doesn't line up with the heavenly father should be abandoned in regards for what he's offering. And we, we, we have... All right, here we go. We have abused, no, seriously. We have abused fathers in the church in the past 10 years with the generational curse stuff and the inner healing stuff and making everything that's wrong because of something my father didn't do rather than pointing them to the one who is perfect that has never done them wrong and has only showed them love. You know why? Because it feels good to think it's not my fault, but here's the problem. We stand before him without excuse. And when I stand before him on that day, he will never allow words to come out of my mouth and say, well, I would have had my earthly father not. Why? Because he gave us a perfect example in his son who led us to the perfect father. Come on. This is why we have to know this stuff. You know why? Because if we don't know the word of God, our motive can get twisted and we don't even realize it. And pretty soon it feels good to have people need to come back to us over and over and over again to get set free from something that Jesus, one encounter, got set free with. Listen, there, if the, the man from the Gadarenes had thousands of demons. He had legions of demons in him. Yet when he wanted to get to Jesus, not even thousands of demons could keep him from getting to the feet of Jesus. If you want to get to the Jesus, your earthly father not being perfect, which he isn't capable of being perfect, anyways can never keep you from getting to Jesus's feet and being loved by him there's no excuse and I'll say that to be mean I say that to say we need to know the truth because the truth is the only thing that sets us free lies may make us feel good but truth brings freedom because it feels good to know well it's really not my fault I am this way because and have something to blame the truth of the matter is is I'm not supposed to consider a wrong suffered if I'm love because love keeps no record of wrong So if I'm actually walking in love, how can I look at my earthly father and point out the things that he did wrong and let that be an excuse for me not walking in love today? We have to violate so many scriptures to make that one thing stick. It's a shame. It's a shame. And we get wowed sometimes and we get impressed because people have a gift without actually looking if the fruit of their life looks like Jesus. And shame on us as churches when we do that. Shame on us when we allow someone's gifting to let us overlook the lack of the fruit of the Spirit in their life and point to something that's happening with a gift or point to something that's exciting and say that's the reason why and let us overlook the fact that right what's staring us in the face is the fruit of not walking after the Spirit but after the flesh. I'm telling you guys, listen, this is something that I feel like the Lord is dealing with and will continue to deal with in, in, in our church, in his church, in his bride, is that I believe that he is tired of people using and manipulating for their own platform, for their own gain, and at the expense of other people, making themselves elevated rather than leading them to him. Because here's the thing, if I do all these things, if I prophesy, but I don't have love, that means when people come to me, I don't know the Father, who can I make them impressed with? Me. My gift leads them to me. If I give all my stuff to the poor, but I don't know God, when they come, guess who, I get imp- who they're impressed with? Me. 
But Jesus said, they'll see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, meaning what? When people come to me and they thank me for the gifting I have or thank me for something I've done, it's very easy for me to lead them to the Father because that's where it came from to begin with anyways. It's not to lead people to me, it's to lead people to him. Things get twisted if our motive isn't love. Things get twisted quick. And here's the problem. The problem is is that so many people are so easily impressed, especially nowadays. Have you guys noticed how like, there's been this resurgence of, of people talking about prophecy? And, and when's the last time you had, there was a conference for the fruit of the Spirit? I mean, like, when's the last time there was a conference about patience? Like, literally, when was the last time we had a patience conference? Or, or a joy conference? Or, 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 a, or a meekness conference? Like, those don't sell out. They don't sell books. But you know what they do? They change lives. It transforms your life. And I'm not knocking spiritual giftings. I'm saying that they are amazing when you're walking, submitted, yielded to the Father. You've denied yourself. Life is no longer about you. Then you can be entrusted with the net to go out and make fishers of men. Then you can be entrusted with the gifts of the Spirit. Because when it leads people to you, which they will, because people are enamored by them, you have nothing inside of you that's seeking after your own. And you can always direct them to the loving Father and show them who the one that gave the gift is. Otherwise, it becomes a temptation to let it puff us up and build a platform, and build a name. Yeah, I thought so. I woke up this morning so stoked. I had to come here and type out some stuff, you know. I don't know why I even do that, because I don't even look at it, but I just always want to make sure that I'm up here not hoping I have a message, but knowing I have one. And then whatever happens can happen. But I'm telling you, listen to me. Like, if you've bought into that stuff, if you've had people, and and listen, this is not to knock people who have pushed this stuff. Most of them are just doing the best that they know. And that's why you have to know the Word of God. Because things get passed down from generation to generation to generation that ought not be. And people build ministries and names built on them. We have, you know, one of the reasons we have so many problems, we have so many answers. We have so many answers. Jesus had one. He thought he was the answer to everything. He told the girl at the well, he didn't say, well, you're looking for the love of a father, so let's go back and forgive your father for not loving you, and then you'll be able to actually be loved by a man. No, he said, you're looking for me. You find me, and you won't be looking for it ever again. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm not against, you know, seeking counsel, and, you know, if you believe things that have caused you to, 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 to live differently and you need truth to replace lies, I'm all for that. But what I am against is blaming uh, our inability to be loved by him on anything other than our inability to get alone with him and be loved by him. You get alone with him and let him love you, and I promise he's coming to love you. I have a hard time receiving. Maybe you have a hard time getting alone and believing that he actually wants to love you. Maybe you need to understand that he became sin who knew no sin, that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that he sent his son because he loved you, not so that he could. You were never unloved. If you don't believe the Father loves you, you can simply look at Jesus hanging on a cross, and there's all the proof you need that you're actually loved by the Father. You don't need an earthly person to show you what love looks like when you have a heavenly Father who gave his son to be crucified so that he could have a relationship with you. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. In this, God showed his love for us, that while we were sinners, he sent his son to die on a cross. Not when we got our act straight and got everything figured out, 
and he knew that we would receive it. He said, they looked down while we were still sinning, while you were living the worst you've ever lived on the day that you hope nobody ever finds out about and that you're the most thankful that the blood of Jesus covers and that is removed from you as far as the east is from the west. On that day, he looked down at your life and said, he's worth the blood of my son. Not on your best day, he did that day too, but on your worst day. On the day that, that you're so thankful, aren't you thankful for that promise that I, the Lord their God, will forgive their sins and remember them no more? Aren't you thankful for that? Yeah, I am too. Think about this. On the day that maybe nobody else knows about and you're the only one that knows about, maybe just a few people know, on that day, the day that you are the most thankful that his blood has covered and that he'll never, ever bring up again, that it's removed from him as far as the east is from the west, that it's lost in the sea of forgetfulness, on that day, he looked down at you and said, you're worth the blood of my son. I'll, I'll trade his life for the chance of a relationship with you. you. You understand that and you believe that, that he became sin that knew no sin, that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that it wasn't an act. He didn't come and act sinful so you could act righteous. You actually believe that. You'll have no problem getting alone with the Father and letting him love you because there will be nothing that keeps you from coming to him because you won't have a clouded conscience. You let that blood of Jesus wash over you and believe that it really did make you a new creation. That when he recreated you, he made you in the image of the first man, Adam, made for love, perfect in his image. And then Adam traded that. Jesus comes back, the second Adam, and takes back what was lost in the garden. It says that through the, through the, the disobedience of the one, the many became unri- unrighteous, many became sinners. How much more than through the obedience of one man, Jesus, did the many become righteous? You believe that for yourself. You take that word of God and you eat it. Don't, don't read it so that you can argue with somebody. Don't read it to win a conversation. Don't read it to have something to write on Facebook or Twitter. Don't read it so that you know the next tattoo you want to get. No, read that word of God to know him. Get alone with him and say, God, I'm not reading this word so that I can set somebody straight. I'm reading this word because I want to know you. And he'll come and you'll know him. You'll have intimate union with him. He'll gnosko you and you'll gnosko him. And then you can go out into the world and make disciples. And then you can go out into the world and be fishers of men. And then you can be trusted with a net because it won't be people that you harm. It'll be the kingdom of hell that you harm. It'll be the enemy that should be afraid when they see you with a net in your hand, not the people that you're chasing. But it comes first with getting alone with him, knowing him, being loved by him. I'm, I'm going to close with that. Like, I just want to close up with that. Like, like, you, like you can come boldly into his throne room. I remember, I tell this story a lot because it's one of the best pictures of it that I have is when Patty and I first started dating, we would be driving in the car and I just thought she was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. And I would just stare at her, like creepily probably. <laughs> but I would, I would just stare at her. And I, we would, she drove because she had a car I didn't. Uh, she didn't marry me for my money. She didn't date me for my money either. <laughs> but she would come and pick me up. And we would be driving. And I'd just be looking at her and staring at her. And she would look over and catch me staring at her and get self-conscious. Start doing this. What? 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 Do I have a makeup line? Is I have something in my nose? And finally, after a while of her doing that, I finally one time I said, I'm not looking at you because I see something wrong. I'm not looking at you to try to even find something wrong. I'm looking at you because I love you. And I love looking at you. 
And after a little while of, of saying that, or there was a few days later, I remember the Lord saying, Roy, I'm not looking at you because I see something wrong. I'm not even looking at you to find something wrong. I'm looking at you because I love you. And I love looking at you. And all of a sudden, this scripture flipped in my head. Because the fact that God saw everything that I did used to terrify me until I understood why he was looking at me. And all of a sudden, that became the most comforting thing in the world. To know that there's nowhere I go and nothing I do that he's not there with me and that he doesn't see and that he doesn't care. You believe that for yourself. You believe that he sent his son because he loved you, not so that he could. We were enemies in our minds, separated from him, not in his mind. In his mind, we were the objects of his affection that he so loved, he gave the life of his son for relationship with us. You believe that for yourself, you get alone in a room and you just tell him, God, I want to know you. I want to love you more. I want to be loved by you. You get into his word and say, God, I'm reading this because I want to know you. I don't want to talk about you. I don't want to have a marriage certificate and the whole world think that we have intimate union. I want to know you. I want to have intimate union. You do that, and you can be entrusted with anything. And the motive will never be anything other than love, because it's what you become. Loving isn't something you just do. Love is something you become. You become it. And then there's no chance that you could speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not love, because you've become love. There's no chance that you could prophesy and have faith to move mountains and not have love, because you've become love. There's no chance that your motive can be twisted and perverted. There's no chance you become that guy that people run away from with their hands in their ears because the sound of your voice hurts them. You become someone that everybody's drawn to because the sound of your voice sounds like his. And when people are drawn to you, you point them straight to him. That's what he wants. That's his desire. Get alone with him and let him love you. Let that change you, and you become love. Love is patient. You don't do patience, you become patient. Love is kind, love is gentle. You don't, you don't do gentleness, you become gentle. Love doesn't boast. Love has no need to brag about itself. It has no need for you to be impressed with me has an extreme desire for you to be impressed with him. It doesn't seek after its own. It's not selfish. It's not self-seeking. It's not seeking to build its own kingdom, its own platform, its own name. It doesn't consider a wrong suffered. It's not keeping record of wrong and wanting to punish you for the things you've done wrong. The only reason it sees wrong is because it sees right. And so it sees right and it hates anything in your life that's less than right. For your sake, not its own. Mm. Hopes all things, bears all things, believes all things. Love never fails. Never, ever fails. So if there's an area in our life where there's a failure, it's a lack of love. I said this in marriage counseling the other day when we were talking to a couple, me and Patty. I said, there's no way that two people who are following Jesus could have a bad marriage. It's just impossible. 
doesn't mean there's no way that two people who have said a prayer, there's not no way that two people that go to church, there's not no way that two people operate in the gifts. That's not what, I, what it says. There's no way that two people who are actually following Jesus and becoming love could ever have a bad marriage because love doesn't seek after its own. It doesn't keep record of wrong. And so if it's not seeking after mine and it's not keeping record of wrong, how could we have a bad marriage? How could we have bad relationships? Like, think about it. If you've got two people that are not in it for themselves but are in it for the other, how could we not have a good relationship? Why, why, how could a friendship be destroyed if we're both walking in love? How could people be torn apart if we're walking in love? Anywhere you see that, killing, stealing, and destroying, it's the sign of the enemy, and it's a lack of love. So, Father, I thank you that you would make this house, God, but more importantly, your, your bride, your church, a people of love. God, that we would know you. God, not that we would know about you, not that we would be content just to be in your house, Father, but that we would have to know you. We would have intimate union with you, Father. I ask that we would seek you with all of our hearts, God, and I thank you that your promise is we'll find you and we'll know you. God, I ask that we would consume your word until it consumes us, Father, that we would know you and know your word, God, that we would never give people an answer that Jesus wasn't comfortable giving them. Father, if we can't find it in your word, let it be hard to find on our lips. I thank you that life becomes so simple when the answer is Jesus. Paul writes in Philippians, he says, consider Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying, think about how Jesus lived. He's not saying consider like, hey, have you considered Jesus? Maybe he'd help. No, he's saying, think about Jesus and consider. that It says when he was, it talks about when he was uh, slandered, he offered nothing in return. It says that the people abused him and he didn't abuse them back. That he had every right to throw a stone at the woman who was caught in adultery, yet he didn't let his righteousness give him a right to abuse somebody. Consider Jesus. What does it look like to love like him in every situation? Father, I thank you for that. I ask that you would make us God as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.